Good morning to you all. My name is Darren, and I'm one of the shepherds on staff here. If you're a guest with us this morning, or maybe you're visiting with friends or whatever, we're really glad you're here. We hope that uh, anything we can do to help you in the process of making like the transition from guest, which we're happy you are, but the transition to feeling like family, like this is home, uh, we want to do anything we can to sort of help with that, and we're excited that you're with us this morning. Now, we're jumping into uh, we're jumping into an ongoing study here. We're in Genesis 14, and we're we're paying attention to the whole chapter, but for the sake of our family Sunday, which, by the way, I love, I I'm looking forward to. Uh, Hearing all of your comments about my dance moves over there, they weren't perfect, but they were, it wasn't terrible, huh, Maddie? That was all right. Kind of, sort of. Thank you. All right. Uh, I did my best. That's what matters. But we're in, a, we're in a study in Genesis 14, and so let me give you a little bit of a summary of where we're at, because and, and, we shortened the text a little bit just for the sake of time with kids in the room and trying to pay attention to the joy of having all of us in the space together. Last week, if you were with us in Genesis 13... We saw that uh, Abram and Lot, his nephew, that their possessions had grown so large that they were having trouble dwelling in the same place together. And if you're with us, we talked about the the trouble sometimes that wealth brings, that it creates all kinds of places where division can occur or where conflict can occur. And that certainly was happening with Abram and Lot. And so remember, they divide. Abram takes a very gracious and sort of open-handed stance. He says to his nephew Lot, look, the whole land lays in front of you. Pick the place you want to go and I'll take what's left over. Even though uh, Abram's the man upon whom the the blessing of God rests, uh, Abram is trusting God. There's this demonstration of faith. Well, Lot looks and he sees the lush uh, river valley and he goes, hey, this looks like the place where I got rich in the first place. It looks like Egypt. So I'm going to take all of that. He takes all of the Greenland, right? And ends up sort of relegating Abram to the rocky places in between. And uh, What it tells us in that text in 13 is that Lot, by his choice, ends up moving towards these cities, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, where there was a lot of wickedness taking place. And in fact, kind of camps out really close in proximity to Sodom. That creates a little bit of drama for him, right? Because Sodom is a city now that's involved in a conflict. And if you were to read the beginning of Genesis 14, what you will see is that there's this conflict that happens between four Middle Eastern kings and five sort of... uh, five sort of local tribesmen that include the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. So at the beginning of Numbers 14, we see this, uh, this military campaign with guys like Keter Lammer and whatever. Those guys are essentially coming from the areas today we would call Iran and Iraq and Turkey. And they control this area. And they've got all sort of these uh, liege lords. And they go in. Uh, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah rebel against uh, their, you know, Keter Lammer and his crew. And they have this battle, right? In the midst of a much larger campaign, they have this battle. And the four kings from the Middle East defeat these five local tribesmen, including the king of Sodom. And when they do... They end up taking uh, Lot and his family and a bunch of stuff captive. Lot basically becomes a prisoner of war. He becomes uh, the spoils of war. And Keter Larimer and his crew are taking Lot and, and his family and his stuff away, right? One of them escapes and comes back and tells Abram, Hey, your nephew, Lot who had camped by the city of Sodom, he just was in the middle of this conflict because of his proximity to Sodom, and he's been taken captive. He's basically owned now by Keter Laomer and his associates, and you may never see him again, right? Because of where he put himself, he's ended up in this terrible spot. And so then what we see in the text we read this morning, that's kind of catching you up to speed, is that Abram, when he hears that Lot has been taken captive decides to do something about that right now. I just want us to stop as we begin the study and think for a second about what is typically your response 
When you hear that someone is in trouble, but you can clearly see that they're in trouble because of their own dumb choices, or maybe their own selfish choices, right? We've all made selfish choices. We've all done dumb things in our lives that put us in difficult situations. But that's what's happening here in Genesis 14. Lot has been taken captive, not because of something Abram did, not because of a series of faithful choices that Lot made, but because he made the choice to move close to wickedness, because he made the choice to take all the best stuff for himself, he put himself in a place where now he's suffering the consequences of his own choices. And I do think that there's a temptation for us sometimes to go, hey, if somebody's in trouble, but they're not the, the cause of it, right? If somebody's accidentally in trouble, we'll help them. But if they're in trouble because they've been dumb or because they've been selfish or because they've been prideful, well, they'll have to figure it out themselves. Fortunately here, that is not Abram's response. When Abram hears that his son Lot has been taken captive, he doesn't go, well, too bad for Lot. He should have been smarter before he left me with all the dusty ground, right? No, Abram rallies to go and help Lot. That's an important point for us to start with. It's funny, when, uh, when my son Will was really little, he was like three years old maybe, uh, we used to have this uh, Nissan Armada, right? I don't know if you know what that car is, a white Nissan Armada, it's big. We lived in the mountains for a little while, we needed a four-wheel drive. I got six people in my family, so we needed kind of like a big car just to get around. And one morning when we were living in Long Beach and Will was just a teeny guy, I came out of the house getting ready to go somewhere and I look up, I can't find my son, I look up and I see my little three-year-old son sitting on the roof, like up on the very top of our Nissan Armada. He's sitting up there. I have no, I mean, I'm guessing he like climbed up the bumper and then sort of shimmied up the windshield. I don't know exactly how he got where he was, but he's sitting on the top. And when I notice him sitting on the top of this Nissan Armada and he's not capable of getting down because he's too small, he has, he's kind of stuck basically. He looks at me as I, when I first catch his eye, he looks at me and he goes, dad, I've been making some terrible choices. <laughs> right? And there was an acknowledgement on his own part that like, I'm in the pickle I'm in because I made a series of choices that landed me in the spot and I don't know how to get out of it, right? We've all been there. We've all both been the person stuck on the top of the Nissan Armada and we've also been the people who are looking on and we have a decision to make in that moment. Will we be gracious? As a dad, of course, I go to get my boy and I take him off the top of the Nissan Armada. I pick, that's what I'm there for. I'm there to rescue my kid. The opportunity for us to demonstrate rescue and deliverance, to set people free, even when they've made mistakes, is beautiful. And it's a brilliant opportunity to reveal the character of Christ. Abram, by the way, in Genesis 14, doesn't know who Jesus is. Most of us in this room do. Abram didn't know who Jesus did, who Jesus was or who he would be, but he did have faith in God who had promised to bless the whole world through him. And in Abram's act in Genesis 14, we see a beautiful revelation of Christ before Christ ever came in the body, right? Before he ever came in the flesh. Abram puts Jesus on display in Genesis 14. How? By providing deliverance, by rescuing the captives, by setting them free, even though they didn't deserve it and even though they haven't earned it. Let's read this together. Genesis 14, look at the first few verses here, starting in 14. It says, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 
He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, right? Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. So it'll tell us at the end of the chapter that not only did Abram have his 318 household men, but he also had some help from some of his local associates. If you look at the bottom of Genesis 14, when he divides up the spoils, what little portion there is, he talks about Aner and Eskel and Mamre. Those are three of his associates and they go with him, right? So Abram's got 318 men and each of his friends, they go and they're able to rout these four Middle Eastern kings who had conquered everybody else. Now, most theologians, uh, most theologians will look at it and say that it's likely that Abram and his men had success. Obviously, they were anointed by God and God delivered these people into their hand. We see that in the text as well. But it's likely that Keterlamer and his associates were celebrating the fact that they'd had this incredible victory, that they kind of let their guard down, that they'd sort of thought their time of battle was over. And so it was a perfect window of opportunity for Abram and his associates to go in by night to divide and to conquer. And they not only conquer Keterlamer and his, and his team, they not only conquer them, but they chase them, it says, right? So it's a sound victory. And they take back Lot, they take back the possessions, they take back the people who've been taken captive, and they come back. I want us just to think about this for a second, because I, I think many times for us we go, well, I don't, I don't mind rescuing people, and I don't mind delivering them, and I don't mind setting the captives free, as long as I know there's going to be a positive outcome. Right? I want to be sure that if I make this investment, if I take my 318 men or whatever resources I happen to have in the service of someone who's made some stupid choices, I want to be confident that on the other side of that sacrifice, that that person is going to recognize they've been stupid and they're going to start being smart. Does that make sense? We like to help people who are going to learn a lesson. I want to point out to you here in Genesis 14 that Lot apparently learns nothing from this whole ordeal. Because what we will see is that even after Abram and his 318 men rescue Lot, get them all their stuff back, there is no moment where Lot goes, oh, Abram, you were smart and I was stupid. God is faithful and I need to follow him. I shouldn't have been selfish. I shouldn't have been prideful. I shouldn't have set up my camp by the wicked city. Instead, I'm going to change my life. There's no place like that. In fact, what we see is that, you know where Lot goes after he's rescued from Keterlammer? He goes right back to Sodom again. So in essence, he kind of learns nothing from that. Well, we don't like to make that kind of investment. That feels like a failed investment. We don't like to sacrifice and serve and put our neck out for people that won't appreciate it, that aren't going to turn a corner. And yet, here's what I'd want you to see. Once again, what we see in the act of Abram in this case is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. Right? We don't like to give to people who don't appreciate it. We don't like to serve people who don't deserve it or haven't asked for the help. But isn't that exactly what Jesus does for us? Isn't Jesus' incarnation and his coming in bodily form, the taking of the sin of the world, the shedding of his blood on the cross, the rising from the dead and the extinction by his grace of resurrection life, isn't that at its very core, the giving of something to people who don't deserve it and can't appreciate it, who won't appreciate it? I mean, the the great mass of people who've lived since the resurrection of Christ think of Jesus' name as a curse and he died for them still. So Jesus' grace and Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' love is not wholly dependent on how people respond to the sacrifice. He gives and is gracious and sacrificial. He is a deliverer and a redeemer and a rescuer. He sets the captives free even when those people don't necessarily recognize how blessed they are to have his deliverance. And there's a, there's a message for us in that. 
There's a message for us to not withhold our kindness. To not withhold the revolutionary kindness that comes from humble solidarity with our fellow man in recognizing that we are just in need of rescue. That we are just as broken. That we are just as lost. And if Jesus does that for us, then in our relationships with other people, whether they be in our places of work or whether they be in our homes or our neighborhoods or our schools, we have the opportunity to paint an accurate picture of Jesus when we give and love and serve people, even if they don't deserve it. Most of the time, they won't. That's what Abram does here. He picks up these armies and he goes, he routes this foreign king and he brings Lot back because it's the right thing to do. Because it's a kindness that is demonstrative of the kindness of God. Now, when he gets back, there's a, there's a whole other conflict there, right? There's a whole other thing that I don't think he anticipated. But he's met by these two kings, right? And he, he doesn't necessarily know what he's looking at, but he responds beautifully. I remember uh, when I, I, was, I was a chaplain with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department for about three and a half years. And uh, we got a call one time, I was on a ride along with the sheriff's deputy and we got a call that there was a man who'd been hit by a car. And so you can imagine when you get a call like that, you go full lights and sirens, like as fast as you can to get there to try and save the life of the man who's been hit by the car. So we speed over to where it was reported to have happened. When we get there, sure enough, there's a man laying uh, with his lower body, like his legs and torso up on the sidewalk and his upper body, his chest and head in the street. And so we pull the patrol car. I say we, I wasn't driving. I'm just riding along. But I, I was, he, the, the deputy pulled the patrol car to kind of block traffic. He calls an ambulance. He calls the paramedics. We jump out of the car. We go over. We're trying to secure the scene, make sure the man's alive. And he is. He's, he's even kind of conscious. He's a little dizzy or whatever. But uh, the paramedics come. They get him up onto a board. We get him secured so we can make sure he's okay. But the deputy really wants to get almost immediately to getting some details about the hit and run because we want to try and catch the person who did it. So he says to the man who's now on a backboard, he says, can you tell me a little bit about the car that hit you? You know, can you tell, because we want to try and catch him. And the guy says, yeah, it was, a, it was a blue car. And so the deputy writes it down. You know, he calls it and we're looking for a blue car, small car, whatever. And then the deputy says to him, can you, if it's possible, can you give me kind of a window of time? Like how long ago were you hit? Because what that will do is it will give us a kind of a radius of how far the guy may have traveled, where we're looking for the guy who hit you. Can you tell me how long ago you were hit? And the guy goes, yeah, no problem. It was like four weeks ago. And the deputy goes, I'm, I'm sorry, what? And he goes, yeah, that blue card hit me like four weeks ago. I didn't even see him coming. And the deputy's like, well, I don't, I don't think I understand. Like I... Like, what were you doing in the street? When we pulled up, you were laying in the street. Why were you laying in the street? He goes, I'm drunk. <laughs> so apparently the dude had been hit by a car a while ago. Sometimes you don't know what's going to happen. Like, you don't know what you're going to need to offer. You don't know what the actual problem is. Once we determined all of that, we had the ability to actually help the man, not for a car accident, which happened a long time ago, but for the situation he was currently in. We have to keep our radar up for ongoing opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus, right? So... When Abram gets back from this military campaign, you can imagine they're high-fiving each other. They're excited. They've just had this incredible victory. And when he gets back, he's met by two kings. He's met by a guy named King Melchizedek, who it says is both king and priest in a place called Salem, which today we would call Jerusalem. By the way, that's a Canaanite city at this time, which likely implies that Melchizedek is a descendant of Ham. You'll remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about the curse of Noah upon Ham and his descendants. This priest and king of the most high God is likely a Canaanite, right? He's met by Melchizedek, the king, uh, the king and priest of the most high God. He's also met by, by the king of Sodom, right? And they, they, they do, they have two very different responses. So I want to look at these in turn. 
The response of Melchizedek when he returns, let's look at this, back to Genesis 14. The response of Melchizedek is this. It says in verse 17, After his return from the defeat of Keterlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So the first king he comes into contact with, these two kings come out together, and the first one is this king slash priest named Keterlamer. Let's just talk about him for a second. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, it talks about Melchizedek. It says, To him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Because the, the word uh, uh, Sidek, right at the end of Melchizedek, that, that means righteousness, right? So the king of righteousness. And he is also, it says in Hebrews 7, 2, Uh, king of Salem, and that is king of peace. So we see him being called a king of righteousness and a king of peace. The the king slash priest of Jerusalem. Now, there aren't very many king priests in the Bible. Some people will say David was kind of a bit of a king and priest because he had some priestly duties while he was the king. But really, if you want to go like technically, the only other king priest we see in all of the scripture is the Lord Jesus himself, who is described as both a king and a priest and the king of righteousness and the king of peace, right? So there are some great parallels here between Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus. And the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 will unpack those parallels and also the ways in which Jesus is superior as a priest to Melchizedek. We talked about that when we studied Hebrews. I don't want to spend too much time on it this morning, but I want to say this. Melchizedek shows up And we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he goes, but here's what we know he does. He, in essence, in response to this incredible victory, uh, sort of conducts what is the equivalent to what I would say is like our modern worship service, right? What does he do? They bless God. They turn their attention towards God. Even in the blessing that he gives, back to Genesis chapter 14, in the blessing that he gives, it's primarily not about Abram at all. Look at the the focus of, of Melchizedek's blessing. The blessing is primarily about glorifying God. He says this, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Even when he blesses Abram, he says, look, you are the follower of God most high who owns everything and gives everything. He's both the provider and the possessor of all things. And that God, even though you just had this victory, let's not splice it or dice it. Let's just be clear about it. The only reason you were victorious, Abram, is because that God who owns everything and gives everything delivered your enemies into your hands. Praise be to God. That's what Melchizedek's doing. Don't focus your eyes on your military power. Don't focus your eyes on the fact that you win at night. Don't focus your eyes on the fact that Keter Lammer didn't see you coming. Don't focus your eyes on any of those other things. Focus your eyes on the fact that God, who owns it all and gives to those who are faithful, put your enemies into your hand. It says he serves him bread and wine. And, uh, you know, you maybe get your spidey sense tingling a little bit and you go, bread and wine. That feels a little bit like communion, right? There is another king priest who will serve bread and wine in effort to point out in remembrance the fact that he will give his body and his blood in order to establish a new covenant between us and the Father. There are many who will look at what Melchizedek does and they'll see the signpost, they'll see the foreshadowing of Jesus and even the celebration of the Lord's table, which we'll take together in a few minutes. But what we see for sure here is that, is that Melchizedek sits down with Abram and says, in the midst of everything that's happened to you, 
I don't want you to miss that it's the glory of God that reigns supreme in this whole story. Don't miss what's happened in this story. And I love the response. It's interesting because after this worship and after the sharing of this meal, it says Abram gave a tenth of everything. Now, that's a really interesting response. There isn't a point in the midst of this worship service with Melchizedek where Melchizedek says, and now is the time when we take the offering. So I'm going to pass the plate. And Abram, if you feel so inclined, try and give with joy. You can give via credit card or you can write a check. There's a box in the, you know, he doesn't do any of that stuff. What does he do? All that Melchizedek does is says, don't miss the fact that God is the one who owns it all and gives us everything we have. And the natural response from someone who has a clear view of the glory of God is to give, right? There is no prerequisite for this tithe. There's no place prior to Genesis 14 where God says, when you meet a priest of the most high God, give him 10%. There is no rule like that. What, this is just an unprovoked offering and a sacrifice that Abram makes because he sees who God is. Let me tell you, it would be incredible to get to that place as a modern group of worshipers, a modern day church today in in 2021. Wouldn't it be amazing to be at a place where we never had to take the time in the middle of a worship service to go, here are the ways you can give. Here is some good reasons to give. Here are a couple of stories to show you how your dollars have been at work. That feels like marketing to me. I'd much rather get to a place where we as a concerted group of people could go, look at God and see if that doesn't draw something out of you because of who he is and what he's done. Now, practically, we may not ever get to that place, right? We've got a bullet point in our list in our worship service where we go, be sacrificial because Jesus is sacrificial. But the much better way is that when we have a clear view of who God is and what he's done, that he owns it all and that he gives it, that we then go, well, I want to be like him. And so if he's a giver, I also am a giver, right? That, that is the proper form of sacrificial response, both with finances and everything else. It says he gives everything, gives the tenth of everything, right? Now, in contrast to the worship service that Melchizedek promotes and and prompts, we see the king of Sodom. Go back to Genesis 14. The king of Sodom's approach is very different. So following that, uh, that worship service, it says in verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Right? So, so instead of saying, hey, God is the one who gives everything, he owns it all, the king of Sodom goes, okay, look, you, you got back all this rich stuff and you got back all these people. I mean, I'm not going to argue with the fact that you deserve all of the gold and the silver and the livestock and the possessions. You can keep all of that because you earned it fair and square. It's yours. But can I just have the people back, right? So there's this bargaining that's happening, right, from the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom is saying, I don't need everything back. I just want the people. And that feels like a reasonable request. But to Abram, he's quick to pump the brakes. He doesn't say, oh, you're right. I mean, all this stuff belongs to me, so I'm going to take whatever I want. He doesn't say, oh, you know, king of Sodom, you've made a good proposal. I'll give you the people back. Abram pumps the brakes and he says, hold on a second. Let's look at what he says. I won't paraphrase it. We'll look at it specifically. Abram says this, verse 22. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So he goes, God is glorious and he owns it all. And I've sworn to him that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. You see, Abram coming out of this worship service with Melchizedek, where he's just recognized that God owns it all and gives it all. He says, look, I don't deserve any of this. I don't don't deserve to take any of it. I recognize that God is the giver of all things. And here's the thing, he says to the king of Sodom. I want you to know that too. I don't want you to be confused 
any more than I want to be confused about where it all comes from. The blessing comes from God, and I know it, and I want you to know it. What's he doing here? Well, well once again, he's putting the, his faith and his generosity on display. He looks at the king of Sodom and says, I don't need any of that stuff. He's like, let's make sure that we take the food. You know, you, you give an account for the food we've eaten. And these guys went with me so they can have their share. But for me, everything I need is provided by God. Listen, you and I are faced with this same dilemma all the time. This battle, you're, you're probably, it's, it's not very likely that you're going to be called into a battle where you got to fight against four kings or five kings, where you got to rally an army or find 318 fighting men. That probably won't happen in your week this week, but you will certainly this week be faced with the second battle. The battle to go, are you going to give God the praise? Are you going to be generous because God is the one who owns it all and has it all? Or are you going to be the kind of person who takes what you can get when you can get it? Because you don't know when that opportunity is going to come up again, right? You see, when we turn loose of those opportunities, we have the opportunity to put our faith on display for people who might otherwise misunderstand. He goes, I don't want to take even a shoelace from you because I don't want you to think that you're the one who provides for me. I don't believe it, and I want, you to be- I don't want you to believe it. I want us all to understand that if I have a shoelace, it's a shoelace God gave to me. There's this whole story here in Genesis 14, right? Kings and battles and spoils and tar pits and all kinds. It's a really interesting battle story. But can I tell you, all the battles and the kings and the crazy names and all this stuff, all of that is a backdrop. This chapter is a chapter about the faith of God's people. It's about faithfulness in the midst of all that. I mean, the reality is some of you are going to face battles of your own this week. You're going to face conflict. You're going to face difficulty. There's going to be high points and low points. Maybe you'll have a great, great victory this week. Maybe you'll get the job you've been waiting to get, or maybe you'll lose your job. Maybe you'll have a great week with your family, or maybe it'll be a job where you find out someone in your family is sick or whatever. There there is all this drama that's going on, but all the drama is not the point of the story. The point of the story in your life, good or bad is will you stop and recognize that God owns it all and that he has given it all and that he is worthy of our praise? It's, it's this, really the key story of every individual in this room. Is it going to be about faith or is it going to be about trying to grab what you can? Abram gives and does not take. He frees and does not capture because he trusts. The same is true today. I think it's really interesting when we look at a passage like Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where it says, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Abraham demonstrates this before Jesus says it and before uh, Paul in Acts has an opportunity to quote Jesus as having said it. Abraham already got it. If I'm a follower of God, I'm caring for other people even when they don't deserve it, even in their weakness and in their brokenness. Ephesians chapter four, verse 32 says something similar. In Ephesians four thirty-two, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So it doesn't just say, hey, if you, if you want to call yourself a Christian, if you want to think of yourself as a good person, you should be kind, right? Just do it because that's, that's one of the rules. No, it says be kind and tenderhearted and generous. Why? Because that's Jesus' approach to you. Recognize that in the times in our lives where we look at other people and we withhold rescue or we withhold generosity or we withhold kindness, that in essence what we're saying is that we don't understand what Jesus did for us. When we look at someone else and say they don't deserve it or they haven't earned it or they won't appreciate it, we're in essence saying a thing to our fellow men and women that Jesus doesn't say to us. 
To us, he says, be kind and tenderhearted because that's the way I've treated you. Abram, Melchizedek, yes, paints a picture of Jesus here. But I think even more profoundly, Abram paints a picture of Jesus here when he not only goes to the rescue of his nephew, but then he comes back and he says, I don't want any of this to seem like I did it or anybody else did it. I want it to be perfectly clear to anybody who hears this story that there is a God in heaven and he is worthy of praise. And that should be our approach as well. Would you pray with me? God, I recognize that there may be some in this room who are in desperate need of rescue and they want a deliverer, but maybe they don't even, they don't even know that you are a deliverer or maybe they've put their faith in you and they've been delivered from sin and death. But there are some in this room who feel like they're in a current circumstance in their life, that there's drama going on where they just need someone to come to their aid. Would you raise up your followers? Would you raise up your people? to be your hands and feet, to put you on display in the way we serve others. And I pray that if there are those in this room who immediately have a mind that comes to their, or a name that comes to their mind of someone in their circle or in their oikos who needs rescue or needs faithfulness, that we would go to the aid of those who are in need in the name and spirit of Jesus Christ. And that we would recognize when we do it that we are putting you on display and we're reminding those we come into contact with that all of this is from you. That all we're doing is replicating, sometimes poorly, a thing that you have done for us so beautifully. We thank you for who you are and we pray that we would look at the model of Abram in Genesis 14 and find ways to play out the same story in our lives this week. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.